0: Hello and welcome to the Standing for Truth Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Donnie Bedinsky, and together we will venture on a journey to explore the truth of biblical creation. Our ministry is also available on YouTube, so please search Standing for Truth and get access to the video versions of our programs. I'm Donnie Bedinsky, and as usual stay awesome, and trust in the truth of God's Word. Welcome to Standing for Truth. I am your host, Donnie, and I want to thank everybody for being here for tonight's epic debate. Tonight we are debating the important And very interesting topic, the Cambrian Explosion, best explained by creation or evolution. I have two very well-studied and highly knowledgeable individuals here, Professor David McQueen and Jackson Rowe, two fan favorites. This will be a debate to remember. I am pumped for this debate. I think it's been scheduled for over a month and a half now. So, gentlemen, Professor McQueen. Jackson Rowe, thank you so much for giving us your time for tonight's debate. Thank you. And we are glad to be here. Thank you. I appreciate it, uh, gentlemen. I appreciate it. So I want to uh, go over a few reminders for everybody in the chat. Uh, First of all, if you're not yet subscribed, but you love debates, interviews, discussions, and more, please make sure to hit that subscribe button. Tonight is actually our 150th debate. So Standing for Truth Ministries has hosted and moderated now 150 debates, and uh, this is the perfect debate to be number uh, 150. So if you're not yet subscribed, hit that subscribe button and also share around this content as the truth is so important. Uh, A couple reminders, this week is a busy, busy, I appreciate that. Uh, Brother McQueen. Uh, this week is a busy week. We've got a ton of debates for you. On Monday, we had myself and Jackson Rowe. We debated is all-life related through Common Ancestry. That's a good one. If you have not yet watched that, definitely, Jackson. If you've not yet watched that, uh, please check it out. Tonight, of course, the Cambrian Explosion. Best explained by Creation Revolution. Uh, tomorrow, the big rematch. Uh, David Neff, Dr. Dino. Uh, evolution versus creation. The very next day, we're going to change things up a little bit. We're going to have a debate on the nature of God, Trinity versus oneness. We're going to have Kelly Powers and Otis Lewis. Uh, Then we're actually going to have next uh, month uh, to give a shout out to the debaters on uh, some of their upcoming debates. Professor McQueen will be back here. Uh, Brother David's going to be a a busy man. He's going to be debating Snake Was Right next month. And then we just confirmed this uh, epic debate, a debate between two scientists, the Genesis Flood debate. So Professor David McQueen and uh, Jason Torn. So that's looking forward to most of those. Amen. Amen. And then, uh, Jackson, we are working at confirming another couple of debates with you. Uh, one with Christopher Silvius, I believe, and another one with uh, T-Rock. So you both will be back here in the future. So that being said, let's waste no more time. The audience didn't come here to uh, hear me talk. They came here to see you gentlemen. So before we get into the opening statements, why don't we get some introductions from you both kind of break the ice, get to know the debaters a little bit. Why don't we start with uh, Jackson? Let's start with you. How you been? Hi. What's going on? And a little bit about yourself.
1: Well, I uh, uploaded a video on my uh skink today my monkey-tailed skink this weird lizard i have so if you want to check that out go check it out on my channel give me a good bite i don't know if you could tell on my finger but uh yeah i've, I've uh, been concerned by that i've mentioned this last debate but i've been concerned by a bill that's now headed to the senate it's going to basically ban exotic pets in the u.s effectively so I, I called both my senators today their offices anyway and tried to tell them to uh not do that so I doubt that'll have any effect, but uh, that's what I've been doing today anyway. So I'll hand it over to David McQueen.
2: Did you that's use the saying? word skink a minute ago? Skink, yeah. Uh, oh, we have one of those living underneath our house. Oh, yeah. Oh, how I hate the thing. It looks like some sort of uh, evolutionary snake. Oh, yeah. I used the wrong word. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, a snake with a legs. Yeah. I am uh, David McQueen, and I am uh, looking forward to this debate. Uh, uh, Jackson was so kind last time that I gave him a copy of my book, Autographed and inscribed, and mailed it off to his secret uh, salamander cave. And uh, today, I'm going to get his address and send him a copy of a DVD that I made, 10 years ago that deals with the archaeological site here in Louisiana called Poverty Point. Um, It's a one hour uh, presentation and uh, I've been asked to cut this down, Jackson, to uh, 20 minutes. So any suggestions you can give me once you get it. uh, uh, The name of it is Earthworks, Louisiana Archaeology and the Bible and the, Tag on this one, is there a conflict between scripture and science, which many of you know is a long time interest of mine.
1: Yeah, I wanted to say thanks for that book. It was a, a really good book. Well put together.
2: That's kind of you, my friend. Thank you.
0: You're very generous, uh, Professor McQueen. Definitely, I've got your book as well in front of me. Definitely a must-read book for anybody who wants to see or hear more from Professor McQueen and Jackson Rowe. Please check the description box of this video. I've got all the relevant information for both David and Jackson, uh, Jackson's channel and uh, David's previous debates, lectures, uh, your book, a link to your book, and and so on and so forth. So, guys, I'm going to go over the format real quick. Uh, for tonight's debate before we get into the opening statements, So it's going to be a formal, it's going to be a, a cordial, sophisticated debate. We're going to be having opening statements, 15 minute opening statements. Then we're going to have a 10 minute uninterrupted rebuttal from both debaters. Then we're going to jump into an easygoing, free flowing dialogue. Uh, for about 30 minutes, where uh, David and Jackson will ask each other questions pertaining to the topic of the debate. Again, it's the Cambrian Explosion, best explained by creation or evolution. Then we're going to have a five-minute concluding statement. And then this is where we get you guys in the audience involved. Then we're going to have an audience Q&A. So please make sure you're tagging me with your questions at Standing for Truth. That way I don't miss them. So we're going to hand it over to Jackson uh, for his 15-minute overview. Before he
2: begins, I want to ask a favor. Uh, At the one-hour break point, in other words, after our uh, 30-minute free-for-all, I'd like to take a break and make some coffee and so forth, and then, Jackson, can we come back for that five-minute summary? Is that okay with you? Yeah, that's fine. And then we'll go to
0: the Q&A. Okay. Absolutely. So at the hour mark, uh, guys, um, we can either do it before the discussion, Professor McQueen, depending on how you feel, or right after the discussion. So you, Yeah, after the discussion. I,
2: okay. I've i got my notepad, so I'm going to listen to what you say, Jackson. All right. All right. I know Perfect. what's right and wrong.
0: <laughs> I'm looking forward to this. You guys are great, uh, and, and you're both uh, respectful and cordial, so I'm sure this is going to be very easy for me to moderate. Um, okay, Jackson, we're going to hand it over to you. you got 15 minutes. Um, I should say whatever's not used in the opening statements and rebuttals, we'll just throw into the uh, audience Q and A. So Jackson, whenever you're ready, my good man, the floor is yours. If you need me to share screen, let me know. And I see it popping up now. All right. Is it
1: up? Yes. All right. I think a lot of people get confused by the Cambrian explosion. I'm sure David's not one of them, uh, that thinks like mammoths and whales and everything appears in the Cambrian explosion. Uh, That's kind of something I've seen on Facebook with a few people. Most of the time, people don't think that, but I have seen that. The other thing about the Cambrian explosion, it wasn't as rapid as people are thinking it was. Uh, From the evolutionary perspective, it was about 50 million years, 580 to 490, somewhere in there. So I'm going to go over, well, hang on a second. I'm gonna go over this uh, this area here, uh, the early Cambrian, and then later in the Cambrian, the middle Cambrian, the Burgess Shale. I'm gonna compare the two. Starting with the, the one in China, the Shi-Shan Shale, we have some just kind of simple looking like worm things and just simple body plans. And we go later in the Cambrian, the middle Cambrian, to the Burgess Shale. We have some more complicated things. This is Opabinia, a weird five eyed, Elephant trunk, little shrimp thing. And of course, we have the trilobites appear. Everybody's familiar with those. And in the middle Cambrian, the Burgess Shale, we have the Anomalocaris, which was this three foot long uh, monster of shrimp type thing, the, the super predator of the Cambrian. Now, I kind of have these slides out of order. But this is what came before the Cambrian Explosion. Most people think there was no life, no complex life before the Cambrian, and then everything appears. That's not quite true. In the Ediacaran period, there were uh, life forms like this. This is basically what the layout of the ocean would have looked like during the Ediacaran. Some just weird animals, some with trilateral symmetry that don't exist anymore today. And this is from the Ediacaran period, this is Spragina which is potentially an ancestor of the trilobites, but that's not 100% sure because it's preserved in sandstone with not very good resolution, so they can't make the claim 100%, but they're somewhat certain that it, that it is, not 100%. What they're pretty sure about is this, Cailincia Uh It's uh, early Cambrian from China. Uh, just a really pretty fossil. I, I like this one a lot. I want to get this made into a poster, but anyway, it's uh, it has characteristics of Opabinia, which I talked about earlier a little bit, the elephant trunk shrimp, and Anomalocaris. It has the appendages of an Anomalocaris, and the the five eyes like Opabinia, and some other features that are complicated. But this appears to be the common ancestor of both of them. So uh, it's often claimed there are no predecessors in the cambrian rocks no transitional this is one of them and actually a couple of days ago something else popped up as i was researching it last night last minute i'll talk about that in a minute here's where it fits not very important this is uh one of the early trilobites the red red lichen trilobites uh one of the arguments often used is the eyes were very complex which is true these were fairly complex eyes but uh, not compared to the later trilobites like this one. I think this is a Devonian or Permian-era trilobite. I forget, but it had stalks. It had many more lenses, 360-degree view. So there was a definitely progression of eyesight among trilobites. And some of the trilobites like this one of the early Cambrian didn't even have eyes at all. Arguably the most complex animal of the Cambrian was this hycoictus, an early chordate. This is about as complex as you'll get. You'll never get an amphibian or a jawed fish or anything like that in the Cambrian. This is a illustration of Anomalocaris. I'm using this to illustrate its eyes. It had thousands of lenses in its eyes. And uh, very complex eyes. But my explanation for these complex eyes, they were in the middle of the late Cambrian, would be the selection pressure for vision among predator and prey. The, the prey developed eyesight uh, slowly to avoid predators, and the predators developed eyesight to track prey. So it would make sense that the selection pressure would increase the, the uh, vision capability. And that's, hang on a second. Here's an argument I've used before in a previous debate but why don't we find something like a frogfish in the Cambrian? They live in all environments pretty much. And they're slow. Any, any flood that came upon it would bury it and it would have no escape. One of them, I had a pet, pet one and uh, it actually got eaten by my pet starfish. That's how slow they are. That's a true story. I've said that before, but that really happened. Now, talk a little bit about the pre Cambrian and then back to the Cambrian. This is, these are the Ediacaran Hills in Australia, the pre, a pre Cambrian marine formation. Um, my question is why don't we find if the flood happened we should find dead fish that couldn't swim away from the flood this is is often argued why don't we find these dead fish fossilized in Precambrian or cambrian rock here's the Burgess Shale there's a trilobite here's the Mauschen formation again why don't we find something like skate or shark egg cases in these layers they so they'll sink to the bottom. I found them on the beach. Sometimes they float, but sometimes they sink. I found them both ways. Uh, same with shark teeth. We'll get into this a little more in a minute. And there were some uh, predecessors in the pre-Cambrian that are known for sh- or almost for certain, like area phylum. Not all phylum appear in uh, the Cambrian. Some of them appear before. There are some uh, possible chordates like this one and this one and that one, not 100%. They're tunicates, most likely, but it's not 100% confirmed because the nature of the way they were preserved, it's hard to tell exactly. So here's the, the landscape of the different time periods. Ediacaran, and you go to middle to late Cambrian here, and then you have Ordovician later division, you have some uh, more complex fish, like the ostracoderms. Here's a conodont up here, some more complex trilobites. Now, I was going to say this for the rebuttal, but I think I'll say it now. Uh, this is a conodont. A weird little jawless fish with little teeth. And they find these fossilized, microfossil teeth, in Cambrian layers. So my question is, why don't we find shark teeth in these layers as well? And you can't really use an ecologic zonation argument or a density argument. Here's the distribution of sharks. We go from one to 10 species in blue up to more species in lighter colors. And see, they live mostly in the shallows and the, the Burgess shale. Most of the uh, environments are interpreted as being shallow, so Sharks shed thousands of teeth in their lifetime. I have some visuals here in a second. Uh, so we should find them everywhere. They live in Greenland, like the Greenland shark. Live in the open ocean, like the Mako shark. They live in reefs, like this bamboo shark. Actually, I used to have a pet bamboo shark also. Hatched it from an egg case. I've had pretty much everything you can think of. But anyway, this is what I wanted to really talk about. I mentioned earlier. This is uh, what is it called? I forget. Erratus. I was I found out about this thing last night. Fortunately, it was uh, unveiled like two days ago, and it's called the ancestor of uh, the the basically all arthropods. It has a separate breathing system and leg system, which is not seen in other arthropods. are Other arthropods, it's joined. Here's the actual fossil, but this thing is. Basically, the relative of Chylenxia, which I showed earlier. And Chylenxia is basically the ancestor of radiodonts like Anomalocaris. So we have a line of progression here, and it was completed uh, just a couple days ago, which is really a weird coincidence. Uh, Now that's the end of uh, sharing the screen for now. But I want to show you some visuals I have about the shark argument. Here is a... uh, Dogfish shark I have preserved. I got this when I was a kid. I, they don't really do that anymore. Their class is vulnerable now to extinction. So that's you can't do that anymore. They don't sell them in gift shops like they used to by the beach. That's where I got mine. Same, I got this. Sharks lose teeth all throughout their life. You can see uh, two rows of teeth in the front there. If you turn it around, four rows of teeth in the back r- r- waiting to come up. So, they're losing thousands of teeth in their lifetime. And, time?
2: No, that was my timer for 10 minutes.
1: Okay. And here's a megalodon tooth, fossil tooth. So, they do get fossilized. And we should find them pretty much in all layers, but we don't. We should find them pre-Cambrian, Cambrian. cambrian, But, we never do. Same thing for uh, starfish, echinoderms. They appear in the Ordovician period. They should appear in the Cameron also. This is actually the starfish I was talking about that ate my frogfish. We, uh, we just kept eating everything in the tank, so we kind of put an end to it. So here it is. And one last visual. This is horseshoe crab, which unfortunately recently died. I had it for a year and a half. was doing great. Then my heat went off and cold the Aquarium got too cold and it died. But anyway, why don't we find those in the Cambrian also? So with that, I'll uh, hand it over to David McQueen.
0: All right, Jackson, Roy, I appreciate that opening statement. You got four minutes to spare, so you used about 11 minutes. And that's four minutes we can uh, toss into the audience Q&A, which we do have questions flying in already, guys. So just make sure uh, everybody in the audience, you're tagging me at Standing for Truth. Okay, Professor McQueen, we're going to hand it over to you, uh, brother. You've got um, 15 minutes as well.
2: Okay, I'm and going then... to set my timer for 10 minutes, and then you warn me when I've got five minutes left. Okay, moderator?
0: Sounds good. Um
2: The things that Jackson commented about that I have on my uh, notes here, I want uh, those that are joining the debate to realize what a serious error uh, he has made. Uh, If you go back and look at this again, you'll notice that he talks about the lower Cambrian uh, as a group of simple organisms And then as he continued his argument, he talked about uh, monster shrimp, uh, very elaborate creatures. Uh, He talked about trilobites uh, that are found in the Cambrian. Um, Many of you uh, may not know some of the vocabulary that he used. So here is the word that he used, Ediacaran. This is that group of rocks in Australia that uh, hit such a big uh, conversation. It's supposed to be 542 and 630 million years. 542 is the new break between what's called the Proterozoic or the upper Precambrian and the Cambrian. Um, So that's some of the vocabulary that uh, he has used. And I want to uh, go back to my own experience in this whole issue of the uh, Cambrian Explosion and give you my uh, counterargument to what he has said. As many of you know, I was a student at the University of Tennessee, uh, finishing up my degree between 72 and 74. In 1975, I went to work as a geologist. in the Knoxville field office of uh, the United States Geological Survey. And one of the most delightful experiences of my life was to work around a carbonate stratigrapher named Lynn Harris, an economic geologist named Helmuth Weedow, and a stratigrapher named Bob Lawrence. In the time that I was at the University of Tennessee, I made a transition from um, theistic evolution, let me turn my cell phone off, um, to uh, young earth creationism. And so it was during this time that my professors, notably a man named Ari McLaughlin, a delightful paleontology professor of mine, um, we got to know each other and talked quite a bit. Well, you may know that in the 1970s, before the evolutionary community realized that Dr. Gish and Dr. Morris were whipping them badly in public debates, they were very open to debate. And there were a number of debates at universities throughout America. I helped a longtime friend of mine, Dr. Ken Boa, uh, set up a debate at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and I was uh, the fellow that took water to the, uh, two debaters, uh, uh, the one that presented a chitty, chitty bang, bang argument for evolution. And then Dr. Morrison Gish that took it a bit more seriously. And so my former professors and certainly my bosses were in the audience that night. And one of the arguments that, uh, began is an argument that, uh, uh, my opponent tonight, Jackson, has brought up, and that is, how many phyla are found in the Cambrian? Well, Dr. Dwayne Gish had a a graphic that he used, a slide back in those days, that showed a scene which he claimed was the Cambrian scene. Uh, my very distinguished professorial look, looking. Uh, Paleontology professor actually stood up in debate and said, "No, no, not all phyla are rec- recognized in the in the uh, Cambrian." And so Dr. Gish kept a group of folders, and he pulled out his folder and read the reference about how every major phyla is found. Now, obviously, when we go to the Cambrian, uh, we do not find uh, primates walking around amongst the, uh, the uh, trilobites. And we also uh, don't find, as Jackson pointed out, yet the megalodon uh, shark's teeth mixed in with these very small microfossils called conodonts. Uh, Donnie, in a moment, I'd like to screen share what George prepared about the conodonts. Do you have his um, file that he sent to both you and me that we I, could read? I'll you
0: know, pause what? your timer right here, Professor McQueen. I don't have any uh, photos from George specifically. Oh, okay, you have that's them- no
2: problem. I, no, I'm not going to stop my timer because I can. Oh, okay. I want to go on to uh, to my point here. This debate between my paleontology professor 45 years ago and Dr. Gish erupted into the local newspaper. It went on for weeks. It turns out that my professor did have to concede at the end that while uh, we don't find in the Cambrian a big uh, Louisiana snapping turtle like this, we do find representatives of every phyla, and uh, Jackson correctly uh, commented about the chordates, now, why is this important? This is important to young Earth creationists like me because of diagrams like this. The traditional evolutionary diagram, which all of us have seen in textbooks, is uh, the tree of life, as, it ca- as it's called, which starts in the Cambrian and goes all the way up. Our uh, counterargument to that is that when you look uh, at the level of uh, let's say, not species, but genus, uh, you can find all these different kinds uh, from creation, including the trilobites. And then as uh, the flood occurs, you find all the way up to the present, not a tree of life, but what you might want to think as a group of separate bushes. Now, it's very important to me as a uh, teacher uh, for you all to correctly understand where this word Cambrian uh, comes from. And it's called a sea with a line through it on geologic maps. And the maps that I have behind me, the one here that you've seen many times with uh, Chicago in that area, Uh, Nashville. Do you see the pink that is all over this map? Let me move it a bit. The pink in this map is the Ordovician. It's the uh, unit right after the Cambrian. But associated with that, if we could see it up close, is uh, the Cambrian rocks that are found in the um, East Tennessee, for example. If you look on this side of Nashville. Those are the Southern Appalachian Mountains going down into uh, Alabama, Georgia, and that area. And then the yellow rocks that you see above my name there, that's called the Mississippian Bayman. Now, Jackson, look closely here because I want to show you the trilobites that I have found in the Cambrian. Now, keep in mind, I've been looking for this for 50 years. And here they are. Oh, look, all of my specimen uh, points there are empty. I have, as a professional geologist, not found one trilobite in my whole life. Now, why would I bring that up in a debate about the Cambrian explosion? The portrayal that uh, Jackson, my opponent, has given of the Ediacaran fossils and other fossils just being filled with this abundant, simple life, as he called it, is not true. Uh, Keep in mind, those of you that have followed me over the last year, you're aware that during my ICR days, I took my students and we hiked the Grand Canyon five times in four years. And each time before we would go, I would take a sip of water and say to the students, I've got five minutes left, right, uh, Donnie? That's right. You've got five minutes. Okay. Yeah. I would say to my students, now I want you to play fair. In every geology introductory book, they portray the Grand Canyon as the best display of uh, uh, of rocks from the uh, Tapete Sandstone, the Cambrian, all the way up to the Coconino Limestone. Now, they neglect to say that the Ordovician is pretty much essentially all missing at the Grand Canyon, but that's a topic for another time. The point is I would tell my students we're going to hike down very slowly and then we're going to hike back up very slowly and we don't have permission to take any rocks from the canyon, but we can certainly look at rocks in the outcrops and see if we can find a, a trilobite. In those five years, I never found one, nor did any of my uh, students. Now, why is it that in and Jackson, I would certainly recommend you to buy there is an old magazine called Fossils Magazine that only lasted a year because it the graphics are so good. It's 1976. You can still find it on Amazon. Just wonderful diagrams. But let's look closely. In 76, they don't even mention the Ediacaran but they do show one, uh, several of what are called the index fossils for the Cambrian. And this one here, let me get my finger on it. This one here is called Olenellus, something that all introductory geology students are taught. That's Olenellus, And that is an index fossil indicative of the Cambrian. Well, let's talk for a moment where this word Cambrian came from. In the 1800s, there was a professor, the Reverend Adam Sedgwick, the Reverend Professor Adam Sedgwick. You see, in his day, in the mid-1800s, there was no conflict between the Bible and science, so he was a pastor on the weekend and a professor during the week, and Adam Sedgwick... um, would turn to his class and say, we are going to Wales, that part of uh, of England that is, uh, oh, well, I won't draw it out. It's that part of England that is uh, west of London. It is uh, south of, uh, if this is the... Uh, the lower part of England here. And this is Hadrian's Wall up here. Uh, Wales is this part of England. And so got to put a north area there. So the Reverend Dr. Adam Sedgwick would go to the board and say, we're going to go to Wales and we're going to look for some red uh, shales and sandstones. This group of rocks here, if I can get them up here without knocking everything off. This is a group that I collected in 98 uh, near Seymour, Tennessee. This is the Rome Formation, the equivalent formation of what Dr. Sedgwick was looking at. And here's what the actual rocks look like. It's a red sandstone shale looking rock. And Sedgwick would say, now you're going to find a green mineral called glauconite in it. And we're going to find trilobites. So every year he would write this on the board. And they would go to this part of uh, of England. And he got tired of this, as professors do, writing that every time. So he said, this area is the area of the ancient Celtic tribe called the Cambri." And so he said, I know. Why don't we just call this Cambrian? One minute. And so what happened to all his students? Those students in the 1850s went worldwide. The sun did not set on the British Empire. And so the word Cambrian is a creationist word that was carried worldwide. Because when these guys came to America and India, Africa, and they began looking around, when they found a red sandstone with glauconite and trilobites, they said, oh, I'm going to call that Cambrian. That's where the word comes from.
0: All right. Perfect timing, uh, Professor McQueen. That is 15 minutes. And that also concludes the opening statements. Uh, For anybody who just got here, as I see uh, more and more people coming into the live chat and live audience, uh, we have a formal debate tonight. Those were the opening statements. We're now moving into a 10-minute rebuttal. Then we'll have our opening discussion, a break, and then a uh, five-minute closing statement. And again, we're going to get you guys involved in the audience. We're going to have an audience Q&A. So please just make sure you're tagging me at Standing for Truth with your questions. So Jackson, uh, just make sure you unmute yourself, uh, my good man. You have 10 minutes of rebuttal. All
1: right. I'm not sure how much time I'm going to use up, but uh, mentioned all the phyla and the Cambrian which is true. There was one that was thought to be originating in the Ordovician, but it was recently found that it, it does also originate in the Cambrian. uh, That's true. Bryozoa, I think. And, uh, but some of them do appear before the Cambrian, like, uh, cnidaria, the jellyfish phyla and the sponge phyla, periphera, I think it's called. Uh, uh, I'll get to this question later. Uh, Now, for why you might not have found any fossils in certain Cambrian rocks. Well, in in my interpretation of of how the world was at at the time, I know you don't subscribe to it, but in in my interpretation, the marine areas would have had fossils in them, and whatever was on land wouldn't. So the Cambrian would have covered the whole earth, the layer at the time of the Cambrian, obviously. So, in an area that was on land during the Cambrian, you're not going to find any fossils. But the fossil-bearing sites would have been interpreted as marine environments. So, that would be my explanation for that. Uh, I, I looked into Cambrian rock in Arkansas because that's where I live. There's just this tiny little bit of Cambrian rock in, like, near Hot Springs, I think. Uh, I don't think it's fossil-bearing. I think it's, uh, but I'm not sure. Uh and you mentioned the conflict between the Bible and science, and I don't think that necessarily has to be true. Uh, that's been my position all along. Uh, you can believe in God and believe in uh, evolution and all, all that, in, in my opinion. And the C- Cambrian is a creationist word, that's true. Um, I'm not here to say, creationists never contributed to science, or don't today, even to some extent. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's pretty much all I have written down. But uh, we can get more into the the shard example uh, here in a minute. So with that, I'll hand it back.
0: Okay, Jackson, I appreciate that. Uh, that's only a few minutes worth of rebuttal. Yeah. So what we'll do is uh, split that up into the audience Q&A and the discussion, as I think uh, the discussion portion is going to be a lot of fun as there are some interesting points to discuss and touch on. So, Professor McQueen, we are going to hand it back to you, and you have 10 minutes for your rebuttal.
2: Jackson, I want to thank you for your honesty in that, um, in your comments about what's going on. Um, Over my head is a National Geographic map. Let me try to move it uh, where it can be more uh, visible. Move it this way. Um, Dr. Tim Clary uses this to talk about what is traditionally called uh, uh, Mesozoic rocks, uh, the kind of rocks that dinosaur fossils are found in. And you can see the variety of dinosaurs there. Now, why would I bring this up on the Cambrian? Well, this is in rebuttal to Jackson's comment about, well, McQueen maybe uh, near Hot Springs, but well, there is some Cambrian, but you don't find many fossils there. Um, the reason that fossils of the quality that Jackson has shown, these Chinese examples, the other examples in the Diacra, end up in museums, is it's very hard to find. Uh, Again, as I say, in my own personal experience, uh, I've looked for 50 years for trilobites and haven't found them. Obviously, other scientists have and have documented where they are. But what's the point of my showing this uh, chart behind me? The use of this in flood geology, has to do with dinosaur trackways starting around Texas at the southern end of this map and going all the way up into Canada. This is in the Canadian Rockies. But the same basic argument can be made or is made by um, Jackson to say that, uh, okay, McQueen, uh, there are terrestrial and then there are marine uh, examples of the Cambrian. And, of course, you're not going to find trilobites sitting up on a sand dune to the to the left. Well, Dr. Clary's argument about this is what you're seeing here is actually the rising floodwaters. So, as you see the North American continent being inundated there, we can think of it as the inundation of the um, um, time of the flood as the floodwaters rose. Now, um The argument about what the Cambrian means is brought into focus by the critique that Jackson gave. Okay, McQueen, how come you don't find fossil shark teeth, which are heavy, like megalodon, and uh, they fall down? Uh, How come you don't find fossil uh, shark teeth like that? Uh, in the Cambrian. How come you don't find them right alongside the, uh, the Conodonts? Well, this whole uh, argument about the Conodonts and, and so forth uh, ties in to a debate that goes way back into the uh, 1970s and 80s uh, Dr. Gish wrote, wrote this book in 85. He wrote a previous book called, uh, the, uh, the nature of the, I'm sorry, uh, evolution of fossils say no. And in, in both these books, um, he comments about, uh, uh everything from, uh, uh, trilobites all the way up through, uh, Uh, man. But notice what he says here, which is exactly what Jackson said. It's an argument that really has not changed for 50 years. On uh, page uh, 54 of this book, he writes this way. Life appears abruptly in highly diverse forms. According to evolutionary theory, life first appeared on this planet in the form of microscopic, single-celled organisms. The first abundant fossil record of complex vertebrates, I'm walking block, down, is called the Cambrian period. And it's assumed by evolutionists uh, to have been uh, deposited about 600 million years ago. And that's very close to the numbers that uh, Jackson used there and that are used for the ediacaran And, um, The appearance of a great variety of complex creatures is so startlingly sudden that it's commonly referred to as the Cambrian explosion. The wonderful paleontology professor that I had, Ari McLaughlin, used a Ralph and Stanley textbook to teach us undergraduate um, paleontology. If you know these two names, Dr. Ralph uh, has passed away now, but Dr. Stanley uh, is an emeritus professor at the University of Hawaii. When I retire, I want to go there and be an emeritus professor in Hawaii. That's tough duty. Uh, And uh, I have, in the last week, uh, been emailing uh, Dr. Stanley and thanking him for the book and studying his biography. And many of you may be aware that he was given numerous awards. For his idea that, oh, I know how we can explain the Ediacra farm. I know how we can explain the Cambrian explosion. It's by what is called novel issues. Now, I'd like Jackson to respond to this idea of novel that uh, uh, Dr. Stanley came up with. But the basic idea is that there was the evolution of of uh, shells on many of these uh, 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 creatures. So when the predators came for them, the shell saved their lives, and so they were able to evolve. Now, my counter-argument, my rebuttal to what Jackson has said, is the creatures in the Precambrian, such as the trilobite that we've shown pictures of, uh, are not simple at all. They have complex eyes. uh, They're fully formed. One of the proverbs that we need to put together, I'm challenging uh, Donnie to put together over the next year, not 10 commandments. We've already Somebody's already done that. I think his name was Moses or God. Yeah, it was God the Father. So we shouldn't do that, but maybe we could do nine commandments or 11. Uh, one of them is the one I like a lot. Everyone, including Jackson Rowe, is entitled to their own opinion but he's not entitled to his own truth. The second proverb I think that we should put in this group of uh, commandments is what Dr. Gish repeated over and over again in the 10 years worth of debate. All fossils in the Cambrian and above appear abruptly and fully formed. The fully formed part is an argument against the tree of life argument that I talked about earlier, and it is so common in the uh, literature. The Ediacaran fauna span up through uh, 630 million years, so using a number of about 600 million years for the Cambrian. So the creatures that are found there appear abruptly, and they're fully formed. Well, what does the abrupt mean? My argument would be that um, the issue when you look at these trilobites in the Cambrian is that the abruptness of their appearance is an argument for a situation that would indicate catastrophic deposition. One of the books that I would recommend to all of your library is by this fellow, Ager, don't know the correct pronunciation, The Nature of the Stratigraphical Record. At the end of his book, quite an excellent book, he, uh, he says this, which is a point very well made. The last couple of sentences of his book, now keep in mind. 40 seconds. This guy is an evolutionist. And he says this, the final conclusion I've come to is that though theories of plate tectonics will help us a lot, everything is worldwide. I'm sorry, nothing is worldwide in his view. Everything is episodic. In other words, the history of any one part of the earth is like the life of a soldier. It consists long periods of boredom and short periods of terror. We have always argued against that part of augur's argument because the worldwide flood
0: worldwide flood was 12 months of terror. That does it. And perfect timing there, Professor McQueen. I appreciate that. Rebuttal. Time is flying by. I know time flies by during these openings and rebuttals. Uh, Tons of great points. Great job to the both of you so far. We've got a great chat. uh, Many enjoying this epic debate. So that concludes the opening statements and the rebuttals, uh, David and Jackson. Thank you to the both of you. We are now moving into the open discussion. So as always, we like to keep this free flowing and organic, sticking to one topic at a time. And uh, what we'll do is allow Jackson to kind of start us off and ask the first question or make the first point since uh, David just ended with his, with his rebuttal. So Jackson, just make sure you unmute yourself and gentlemen, the floor is yours. All right. Well, you mentioned
1: novel structures like shells and eyesight and, and like spines in the case of, uh, what's it called? How gent, gent, something? I forget the name, but, uh,
2: yeah, let me uh, let me show it again. It's uh, I don't know the correct pronunciation either, but this is the trilobite there, and the spelling of the name Jackson is uh, it's a genus name, I guess. O l e n e l l u s, Olenellus, Olinellus, maybe. Yeah, I don't know the oh. correct pronunciation.
1: Well, uh, for example, there are some possible sh- uh, mollus. And arthropods in the Ediacaran, like I said, and there are no eyes in the Ediacaran, as far as anyone can tell. Eyes appear later. Uh, First, they appear fairly complex early on in the early trilobites, but uh, they get more complex as trilobites continue to exist throughout geologic time. But novel things like shells and eyesight would have developed as a response to predation, obviously, in, in my view. Uh, so, but back to the back and forth, uh, why don't we find, if it's kind of an ecologic zonation type thing, why don't we find like starfish in, in the Cambrian or pre-Cambrian marine environments?
2: Okay. I, uh, I want to acknowledge, uh, Jackson and the other, uh, evolutionary critics about some things that are, uh, still, Uh, worthy, needed research. Uh, One of the things, uh, 35 years ago, when I was part of ICR in the mid-80s, one of the things that we struggled with, Jackson, was how come is it that when you've got the Cambrian, and I'm going to draw a tree here, like it's the Cambrian of Arkansas that you were talking about there, how come if you've got Cambrian where you've got clearly uh, trilobites, and I'll use a T to illustrate the trilobite? How come you don't find in that, as you have pointed out, the uh, uh, shark teeth? But it gets worse. We're arguing that a worldwide flood on on a on a on a one continent, one huge mega continent. a worldwide flood hit. There was 40 days of extreme uh, uh, fountains of the date great deep, uh, huge erosion event, five more months of sediment being moved around, floodwaters rising. How come you don't find not only the shark teeth that you worry about, but how come you don't find human fossils in the um, Cambrian. If we're arguing that the Cambrian was one of the uh, uh, first layers to be laid down, what Dr. Clary calls the Salk sequence, how come we wouldn't find it there? Well, I think that you're overly critical of the um, ecological zonation argument that has Uh, been used for many years. and let me use uh, this man. This guy's name is Boudreaux. He's got a friend named Thibodeau that's an alligator. But this is a Louisiana snapping turtle. and
1: That one is a pet. What's that? I used to have one of those as a pet. You did? Yeah.
2: Well, if your hand gets in this thing, it hurts, doesn't it? I never
1: got one in there, but yeah, I imagine.
2: Yeah, well... I don't live in a swampy part of Louisiana on purpose because I don't want to be around these things. I I have seen a couple of times in my life, we've been in Louisiana now since 87. I've seen a couple of alligators in the wild, but I don't choose to live around them. So the reason I think that uh, human fossils are not ordinarily found with... Uh, uh, dinosaur fossils, or for that matter, uh, a dangerous uh, gorilla like this that's found in modern day Africa, is that these are dangerous uh, creatures. Uh, uh, they, you don't want your uh, children to be around them. Um, now, that is, I think, a start toward the answer. But your criticism is is legitimate. Uh, what the creationist community has come to over the years uh, is that creatures like dinosaurs, creatures like uh, horses and humans could, and if we use this map behind me here as kind of an analogy, not the way National Geographic intended it, But if we use this as an analogy, the um, humans and the dinosaurs could have escaped the first week or two of the uh, uh, Great Flood as at 40 Days and 40 Nights. I like to uh, show Jackson, my grandchildren, toys I had as a boy. And here's one of my toys from my boyhood 60 years ago a canoe with this fellow in it. And I can imagine uh, these soldiers, here's some of my army men from my boyhood. There's a U.S. army men and uh, they don't make them this good anymore. This is one of the uh, Nazi soldiers. And I want to teach my children about what their father, grandfather went through in world war II. And so whether it's an ordinary size human or a giant illustrated by this big guy, they could have gotten on boats and they could have lasted for a while. Uh, And so with the ability to escape plus ecological zonation, uh, I think that that at least is a start to explain why we don't find the mixture in the Cambrian That you suggest. Now, I'm going to need to ponder your shark argument here because it would seem that a shark, here's a quartz crystal I'm going to use later on, but a shark's tooth is pretty heavy. You would think it would sink down to be with the uh, trilobites. Um, So I don't know every answer, but what do you think about this business of? humans and dinosaurs being able to escape the early most part of the flood?
1: Well, I think if like say an antelope and a velociraptor or Utah raptor, something bigger, were uh, say they're about the same speed with about the same endurance. Why would they not be found in the same layers if they're escaping the, the same event? And another thing, uh, you said you don't like living near alligators, but there's always exceptions to every rule. Like you get a weirdo like me who loves living near alligators, you know? That's,
2: that's true. You, you would have been one of the first to die in the great flood. I would have lasted a few days longer. So that's a, that's another matter, but let's go back to this serious critique of uh, Dwayne Gish and others that what is your explanation that when you do go find, uh conodonts or shark's teeth, or actual the actual shark itself. How come they appear abruptly and fully formed? The individual genus.
1: Well, abruptly. I mean, they're going to appear abrupt in respect to being found in rock because, I mean, they're just by definition they're they're there, even if they were transitional, but uh, like. The progression I showed of the arthropods, the uh, I forget what the first one's called. I've only known about it since last night. I forget the name. And there's chilopoda, and the yeah. like an anomala and things like that. Uh, what do you think of that progression?
2: Well, this is my counterargument to that. Um, the The students in our audience that are watching this debate, you need to actually Google uh, this. Uh, term Ediacaran, which I have here someplace. Um, you need to uh, Google that term because the Ediacaran group is not a group that's uh, really found in the southern Appalachian Mountains where my experience come from. They're not found in the Grand Canyon. They're not found below the Tepete Sandstone. But they are found in these unique environments of Australia apparently China, and for sure the Burgess Shale of Canada. And so there are some uh, uh, localities there. I try to put myself back in the Reverend Dr. Adam Sedgwick's shoes. If he had traveled to that part of Canada and he had found the the trilobites and some of the uh, creatures that you've pointed out in the Ediacaran fauna, I think that Sedgwick would have actually taken let me use my board here I think Sedgwick would have actually taken what he saw in the field and let's use the uh, that's going bad there, let's use the got uh, to get some new markers uh, here we go, finally I got one that works, he would take and once again a tree here as he would walk down the uh, outcrop and come up upon the burgess shale or if he went to australia the ediacaran fauna he would say oh well that's just the uh, lower cambrian no big deal uh that's the beginning of the flood uh those creatures um even though you say some of them don't have eyes and then evolved into eyes and so forth um they um are still in the view of these uh first group of creation geologists back in the 1850s um, still uh valuable now one argument that you should use jackson that you don't is that mcqueen part of your problem is the science that you're talking about is antiquated. It goes back to the 1850s. Uh, you're not modern. You don't, uh, you don't exactly know uh, what the most recent work in the Ediacaran is. And so it's a, it's a legitimate critique of the evolutionary community to look at young earth creationists and say, you're going back to a model of science that was readily accepted in the days of Bishop Usher readily accepted in the days of the Reverend Dr. Adam Sedgwick. Well, that's a, that is a true statement. But my challenge to you, Jackson, is as we talk about this for the next hour, um, yeah, the next hour, um, I'm going to argue that this is a fully adequate way to explain the fossil record and what is commonly called the Cambrian explosion. Can you see the path I'm walking down here, Jackson?
1: Yeah, I see the path you're going down.
2: So um, let's go back to a very specific uh, point that you made, and that's the point about the Conodonts. Here uh, in the record, you find in the Cambrian, Cambro Ordovician Rocks, these small uh, fossils uh, that are the uh, jaw teeth of, uh, of uh, perhaps a fossil eel, do you think it was a fossil eel that the conodots were the jaws of?
1: It was something similar to a lamprey, from what I can tell.
2: Okay. And, you know, why do we not find the megalodon fossils right beside it? Um, we'll ponder that it go- as it goes on. But I do like to add a little bit of humor to this very serious debate that we're in the middle of. And I'll tell you a story uh, that's one of Ms. McQueen's favorite stories about my work as a uh, geologist for the United States Geological Survey. Uh, One of my mentors is a man I've mentioned earlier named Leonard Harris, and he was a uh, carbonate stratigrapher and he began to notice that in some of the carbonate rocks of the southern Appalachians, car, uh, they would be called Canberra Ordovician. As a flood geologist, I would call them sulk sequence uh, rocks. He began to notice that these conodonts, as he would go close to sources of heat <clears throat> and then move away from sources of heat, The small conodonts would actually change color. And so, in an area of very little heat, they would be basically white. And then, in an area uh, close to a tectonic event or a petroleum basin, they became very dark. He worked with two other scientists, a husband and wife team called Epstein and Epstein. And they developed what was called a conodont color chart, which the oil companies were very interested in, in trying to find petroleum reservoirs in the Southern Appalachian. So one day he turned to me and he said, McQueen, here are five topographic maps. I know that you live up in Johnson City, a 100 miles away. Why don't you and your wife go visit your mom and dad? So Lynn Harris had met my dad in the past. Uh, He was a military veteran, survived Iwo Jima, I might add. And my dad was a European theater veteran. So they had something in common. So he said, why don't you go up to your dad and collect some of these uh, conodonts for me? And so he marked on the map uh, where he wanted me to go uh, as we drove up. And as a federal geologist, our style, was if we needed to collect a, a rock on a farmer's farm, uh, if the gate was open, we left it open. If the gate was closed, we closed it back. But we didn't go talking to the farmer uh, because uh, we were federal geologists and we were allowed to uh, collect these uh, samples. So I leave my wife in my 74 Chevy Nova, and she's sitting there not paying much attention. And I walk in, To collect these rocks, which are on the other side of this barn. Now, in those days, I had a red geology field vest and I was in my 20s. And so when I get past this barn, uh, Jackson, there is a bull, a real bull with horns. And I'm a city boy, I didn't grow up on the farm. So that bull sees my red vest, Donnie, and he starts running. And he's chasing me and Ms. McQueen just looks up and I jump over a fence, land in a creek and wet as a fish, crawl back to my wife and said, Lynn Harris can wait for those conodonts. I'm not going to get that sample. If he wants it, he can come. Now, that's some humor, but what's the serious part of it? I've been part of a collection process and actually a processing process where we crushed and dissolve these limestones in order to get to the Conodonts. Once again, from my own personal experience, having been in the field, I've never found a Conodont associated with a shark's tooth, but what's even more important from the standpoint of the Cambrian is I've never found a Conodont in the Cambrian uh, associated with any of the uh, trilobites here, now I'm guessing, and maybe you know the genus name of this thing, there's something that's called graphus that's up in the Ordovician. You figure that is a conodont, or is that something else, Jackson? You see the one that's long and stringy above the conodont there, above the trilobite? Uh,
1: I can't really tell what it is. I yeah, I can't
2: tell, but... What's my point? What's my counterargument to you? Not only have I not found trilobites associated with the uh, conodonts, which you would predict from an evolutionary standpoint. I've also never found the uh, shark's teeth that you're high on. But my question to you is how come fossils like trilobites and fossils like shark's teeth or whole sharks, are so rare in the fossil record? Or let's just focus on the Cambrian. Why has it been so hard for me and my students everybody? For heaven's sakes, I've spent 50 years looking for these trilobites, haven't even found one. Why are they so sparse? Well,
1: that's a good question. But uh, there are some areas like the Buried Shale, which I've never been there, I've always wanted to go, where apparently they're pretty common. Yes. Uh, yeah, but uh, as for shark teeth, they're they're fairly common too above a certain level. They're easy to find, as I understand. Now, it. Uh,
2: here's something that you can answer as a evolutionary paleontology cut top. How come we don't always find the complete shark with the shark's teeth?
1: Uh, probably because most of the time they don't fossilize because of the cartilage skeleton they have.
2: But yet there are um, fossils of sharks, are there not, in
1: museums? Occasionally, yeah.
2: And with what you said about there being, uh, having cartilage and not strong bone, I would predict as a flood geologist that they appear that way because they've been catastrophically buried. And remember that, the old Sunday school idea that Noah's flood lasted 40 days and 40 nights has been dispelled by a correct look at what the Bible actually portrays the the flood to be. And let me take a moment and and actually read from the book of Genesis. You know, my argument tonight is that Genesis is a uh, uh, historical record. And so, when, in the book of Genesis, it talks about uh, the time of the great flood, which is Genesis 6, 7, and 8. And we get up here and we begin reading about uh, the, the whole flood and Noah and how long he lived and everything. And then when it comes down to the part uh, that the wicked sin of the whole world had to be destroyed, Dr. Henry Morris said that there may have been a billion people alive from creation to the flood. John Wood Moripi, uh, Jan Petkus, uh argued that there might have been 100 million. Well, whether it's 100 million or, um, or, um, or a billion, uh, that's a lot of people uh, to be um, uh, destroyed. And so when we come up, uh, to Adam, uh, Noah, and, and the other seven going into the, uh, into the ark. We we read this, and in the six hundredth year of Noah's life, seventeenth, second month, seventeenth day, the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was upon the earth, forty days and forty nights, and as we read on down, the waters prevailed for an additional five months. Now, that's a tremendous amount of movement. Uh, that's a tremendous amount of uh, of uh, erosion. Don't you find, Jackson, that that would be a better explanation for the preservation of these soft-bodied creatures in the Ediacra and in the Cambrian?
1: Well, I don't deny that uh, sometimes catastrophic things happen that can vary things rapidly. Uh- that's often how fossils form, but I don't necessarily think it was all in one event. That's just, that's a short answer, but that's pretty much how I would answer that.
2: <clears throat> My uh, partner over the last year, George has sent me an interesting uh, finding here. I appreciate you reacting to it. Okay. Um, there are some 65 million year old fossils that, uh, Where they found collagen in with a half life shorter than uh, DNA. You know, DNA is will break down in uh, an environment. Uh, One thing, uh, uh, DNA is one thing, but collagen being found with C14 in it, that's another. Uh, If we were to find some collagen in this and some of the fossil. Uh, fossils of the Cambrian. What if we were to find more carbon-14? How would you explain that, Jackson?
1: In the Cambrian? uh, Yes. I don't know. That would be hard to explain But uh, for the uh, collagen. But for the carbon-14, it could be chalked up to contamination in the mass spectrometer or even electric fluctuations in the machinery or contamination in the sample itself. So well, Jackson,
2: I hope you realize that um, one of the words that Donnie and the others at Standing for Truth have taught me over the last year is the word rescue device. Um, I would argue that your suggestion of contamination at the laboratory level is simply a rescue device. Now, I'm not ignorant of the fact that you could turn to me equally and say, well, McQueen... This whole ecological zonation and creatures being able to run away from the rising flood waters. Uh, you could accuse me of, of that being a rescue device. But my question to the audience as they evaluate this debate is: which is a more reasonable thought that somehow every sample that creations have submitted. For carbon-14 analysis, gets contaminated in a laboratory setting? Or is it more reasonable to suggest that uh, humans in boats could have escaped the rising floodwaters for a while? Now, you've got to keep in mind the biblical model. By the end of the 12th month, there can be only eight people left alive in the ark and so you got a tremendous amount of death, but maybe some people could survive a few weeks. What do you think, Jackson?
1: Well, about the contamination thing, I was watching something somewhere, I forget what it was, but uh, some geochronologist was talking about how they can test, like a rock sample, they can test the outside, the middle, and the interior, and if the uh, carbon-14 is more on the outside, that's a good sign it's a contamination. So that would be
2: well, you know, uh, I brought a rock to the debate here that I found in Arkansas, as a matter of fact. Oh, yeah. Um, and this is a pretty, uh, good size, uh, sandstone. And the details of this are a topic for another time. It's suggested this might be a location where the Vikings built built a settlement. I guess it would be northwest of Little Rock, but at any rate, that's not my point. My point is when you look at this rock, it is very consolidated. It is what we would call injurated in the sense if I began to drill on this side and then drilled through the whole rock, um, I see no fractures or anything where contamination could go through. And so the very idea that you would find a different carbon-14 value in the middle of this rock than the outside is hard for me to believe as a professional geologist.
1: Well, I don't want to argue that point with an actual geologist, but I think we're talking about the molecular level. It's There not need to be a physical crack in it necessarily.
2: Yeah, yeah. Now... Uh, Let's go back to your argument about the Cambrian and uh, exactly uh, the meaning of uh, this discussion, which has gone on, uh, I guess the debate in Knoxville was 75, and so soon will be up to 50 years, I guess, ago. What do you make of this argument of Dwayne Gish and others that – Is it not surprising that every phyla is represented in the Cambrian and that this Cambrian explosion is really a very unique event? Uh, What do you make of that?
1: Well, I think it's a unique event, but I think it can be explained by just the diversification of multicellular life. Once it took hold, it obviously uh, expanded rapidly, you know. That, that would just, so from, from one multicellular animal, kind of, I mean, I'm, I'm going on a tangent, but anyway, that, that would pretty much be my answer.
2: Okay. Uh, Donnie, can you do me a favor? <clears throat> I'd like to go get a cup of coffee. Uh, could you read the first question to Jackson, let him respond, and then in two minutes, I promise Jackson that I'll be back with my coffee and... You give the first answer, and I'll give the second. Is that okay, Donnie?
0: Yeah, actually, you um, you kind of uh, mentioned that at the perfect time because we had literally a minute, minute and a half left on the discussion. We went thirty minutes. So what I'll do is, we got a ton of great questions. We're going to take a five minute break now before the concluding statement. Oh, Professor really? McQueen, as you're gone grabbing a coffee, I will uh, I'll go over some reminders. Uh, to the, uh, chat over some upcoming debates and then we'll do. Could you, uh, could you drop my video please? Absolutely. Okay. So we'll see, uh, professor McQueen in a five minutes. We're going to take a five minute break. Uh, we're coming up on the hour and a half mark. Um, time's flying by great debate so far. Uh, Yeah,
1: yeah,
0: very easygoing, relaxed conversation but also a very intelligent and, as I like to say, sophisticated debate. So a lot of great points. Um, This is an important debate, and I don't think we see this um, discussion or debate on this topic enough. So great job to the both of you. I'm looking at the side chat and the private chat where I've saved the questions, and we have so many great questions. So I think the audience Q&A is going to be a ton of fun. So uh, before we get into the closing statements and we have our five minute break here, I do want to remind everybody again that uh, this week is a big week for debates. As a matter matter of fact, this year is going to be a big year for debates. We've got uh, a great diversity of topics as well. Guys, if you are a debate addict like myself and Jackson, you as well, (laughs) somebody was suggesting in the chat that uh, we need to host a formal debate on who is rocking out more debates lately, you or Kent. (laughs) You guys are both. Good uh, question. Yeah, you guys are both in the ring um, every week, multiple times a week. So, Yeah. um, yeah, we've got a great diversity of topics for everybody. And tonight, actually, is our 150th debate. So, Standing for Truth Ministries, we've hosted and moderated 150 debates now. Um, check the debate playlist; I believe it's called uh, "Debates Hosted by Standing for Truth." Check that out, and you'll find all of our debates there. I've I fully updated it last night, prior to this debate. So, on Monday, we had myself and Jackson. We debated ancestry. That was a ton of fun. Um, it's exhausting. That was
1: like two and a half hours long.
0: Two and a half hours long. And we had a great after show. And the debate is getting a ton of great feedback. So I like to see that. Uh, tonight, of course, Professor McQueen and Jackson Rowe share these debates around, guys. Critical thinking is important. That's why we host these debates. Obviously, we are a young earth creationist channel, I'm a young earth creationist. But when I moderate and host these debates, uh, it is my goal to be fair and neutral, because these discussions are important. And we want to show everybody that although we disagree, right, Jackson, we can get yeah. people in here, we can get people in the octagon <laughs> in, in in the debate world to uh, hash out, you know, these differences in worldview and, and opinion and thoughts in, in a sophisticated way. So uh, tomorrow, uh, and David Neff was just in the chat, we got the big rematch. Uh, this debate, wow, this was a wild one. <laughs> About a month and a half ago, I think. Between both channels, actually, no, we have it uploaded on on um, this channel and the secondary channel, and also on Kenton Official. And I think it's got like... I don't know, somewhere between 30 and 35,000 views right now. So that was a ton of fun. And tomorrow, the big rematch. So uh see my
1: approach in that picture. He's doing the mean face.
0: <laughs> hopefully this debate will be as easy to moderate as, uh, as tonight's debate was. So we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> and then on the next day, um, we've got a debate on the nature of God, Trinity versus oneness. Two well-studied individuals on this topic too. So I'm pumped for it. Kelly Powers and Otis Lewis. Again, Trinity versus Oneness. The end of the month, I'm pumped for this one. Uh, Both CJ Cox and Dr. Leighton Flowers, they've had a ton of debates. So these guys are debate pros. So the total inability debate, that's going to be an epic. That's going to be a must-watch, soteriology-related debate. So that is at the end of the month. And next month, Tom Jump, Dr. Ken Hovind, they've both had hundreds of debates. That's going to be a ton of fun as well. Um, yeah, that, I'm really pumped for that one. And we just confirmed and scheduled Professor David McQueen, Jason Torn, two scientists, uh, both highly educated in their respective fields this is going to be a technical debate guys so uh, please make sure you're here for this one Uh, this is going to be i believe the first week of april so the genesis flood debate again professor mcqueen and jason torn so that being said we've got professor mcqueen back here five minutes flies by i hope you got a nice fresh coffee david you've earned it
2: oh yes yes Ms. McQueen was very kind and I have a coffee. Uh, As I ship it, can Jackson go first on his five minutes?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So Jackson started us off and therefore uh, Jackson, you are going to, um, (laughs) I'm just looking at the chat. We got some funny comments. Um, okay, well let's, uh, okay i see some more questions coming in so jackson while you're doing your um closing statement i'll make sure to save those jackson we're gonna hand it over to you you got five minutes for a concluding statement concluding statements are important guys because this is where we have one final opportunity to address any points left hanging and to make any comments that uh, we feel we may not have had the chance to make uh during the discussion so jackson we're gonna hand it over to you my good man uh, five minutes on the clock whenever you're ready. All
1: right, good debate. Uh, I, I love debates, and talking to David McQueen's always fun. He's a nice guy, and I look forward to getting that DVD. Uh, there are some anomalies with the uh, Cambrian explosion, but it's getting clearer all the time. I found Kylenxia in 2020, I think, and they found the, the new one whose name I forget, Erratus. Erratus, I think is how it's pronounced. They found that they unveiled it two days ago, so these precursors are getting clearer, and the line of progression is getting clearer. It's not getting foggier, like you you would expect. I think my shark tooth argument is still pretty good. Uh, I know David McQueen hasn't found any conodont teeth, but in the Cambrian anyway. But other people evidently have, and never a shark tooth. You would think they're shedding thousands in their lifetime, but eventually one of them will drop down to a Cambrian era rock. And if that ever happens, I'll uh, say, yeah, there's something wrong here. But uh, until then, I think uh, the Cambrian explosion is best explained by evolution. So I'll just wrap it up there.
0: All right, Jackson. I appreciate that. A few minutes to spare there, which means we can toss that into the audience Q&A because, wow, we've got a lot of great questions. So I want to make sure we can get through most of these. So we're going to hand it now over to David, David McQueen. Um, the floor is yours whenever you're ready. You have five minutes on the clock.
2: Moderator, if you'd tell me when I hit the four-minute mark, I'd appreciate that because i My got problem. a one-minute closing. I've been reading through some of the uh, questions in the chat, and I've been exp- I've been challenged in this way. Well, McQueen, what's your takeaway? If you're a young earth creationist, how do you explain the Cameron? How do you explain this explosion? Well, uh, I certainly want to blow up uh, Jackson's argument. So that's one explosion I want to go to. But all joking to one side, what is the takeaway? I believe that the things I have seen in my own hiking at the Grand Canyon is the rocks of the of the canberra Ordovician, the salt sequence appear uh on top of an angular unconformity in the base of the grand canyon and appear to be the first rocks of the great flood worldwide as uh, i point out with uh uh auger and with uh, adam sedgwick back in the 1800s uh, when you go worldwide you do find trilobites in uh, this group of rocks you go to the you go to Wales and you find uh, trilobites a mineral called glauconite in a sandstone that has very much the same appearance as the Cambrian rocks of uh, East Tennessee this is called the Rome Shale The significance of that is profound. When you find the trilobite in these rocks, which have been found worldwide, they appear abruptly and fully formed. This argument of Duane Gish has never been adequately critiqued. So I'm gonna keep on using it. The trilobite is not a simple creature as Jackson falsely has claimed. It's not simple at all. It's a very complicated uh, uh, creature. Uh, Whether it appears to be blind or not blind, I'm not going to argue that. But it is the case that it's a very complex creature. The sponges, the shrimp, the other uh, creatures that he's talked about in the Ediacaran and in the Cambrian are, are very complicated. So they are fully formed. I, in my experience, have endeavored to be an honest geologist, believing that the best geologist is the one that's seen the most rocks. So as I've gone in my field work to Zimbabwe in Africa, to Germany, to Scotland, I've even had the opportunity to be in eastern Turkey. So I've gone worldwide looking for uh, transitional organisms. And I've never found them. And the reason I haven't found them is that they are not there. The fossils that I have seen, whether it's the footprints in the Coconino Sandstone at the top of the Grand Canyon, they they appear to be uh, buried very rapidly. The remarkable fossils in the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., that I've led tours there since 1980, Uh, are remarkably preserved and could only be preserved by rapid deposition. And so the Cambrian Explosion is best explained within a flood geology model, where creatures that were essentially marine creatures living at the base of the water column around this one world continent were buried first. And then as you go on, you have the dinosaurs later on and then uh, human fossils um, much later. One minute left. I want to close with a quote from Dr. Henry Morris. Uh, He was writing on his deathbed. And the last uh, thing he wrote was this uh, argument that evolution is a religion But he's got a great quote in here that I'd like to read. This comes from Osorio, the evolution of arthropod nervous systems, an American scientist back in 97. And here's what this uh, guy says. Very interesting. It is now well known most fossil species appear instantaneously in the fossil record, persist for some millions of years, virtually unchanged, only to disappear abruptly. As Darwin noted in The Origin of Species, the abrupt appearance of arthropods in the fossil record in the Cambrian presents a problem for evolutionary biology. Consequently, there's been a wealth of speculation and contention about the relationships between arthropod lineages. You know what one of the proverbs is? Darwin, in The Origin of Species, never proved the origin of the species that's my conclusion donnie
0: all right i appreciate it professor mcqueen fantastic debate david and jackson very engaging and that discussion was a ton of fun very interesting and very easy to moderate so both of you gentlemen thank you so much for keeping it cordial respectful and sophisticated. So that being said, we still have a great chat and we are going to get to as many of these questions as possible. Since we have so many good questions tonight, why don't we um, why don't we make it uh, two minutes? Okay what we'll do is whoever the question is for in order that we can move along smoothly, we'll give them the last word. So let's say the questions for David, David gets two minutes to respond. We give it to Jackson so he can respond and add his thoughts. Um, and then we would hand it back to David for a final word on that. That's and then a good we would...
2: plan. All
0: right. I appreciate it, gentlemen. So all the way back to the beginning, let's see what we have here. Um, okay. So this question came in from Keith Colvin right uh, near the beginning of the debate, I believe. So I'm going to put it up on screen uh, for you guys to make it easier for um, Us to understand and read the question. So Keith says, "Question for Jackson: How much time is required for the average fossil to form from start to finish?" He says, "Thank you with the thumbs up. Thank you for the question, Keith."
1: I think I've read the average time it takes for a fossil to fully form is uh, ten thousand years. I think that's what's often cited. So that that would be
0: the answer, for short, short and sweet. Short and sweet for a short and sweet question. So, Professor McQueen, over to you.
2: Now, remember, Jackson, you're going to get a gift from me, so I'm going to be pretty harsh with you during this last right. little bit, but you are going to get a gift at the end um, <laughs> of it all. Uh, Jackson, Jackson, oh, man. So let's take one of these Cambrian trilobots and let's imagine – um how in the world this thing and let me erase my whiteboard ms mcqueen is not pleased with the way i do this so next month we're going to take some of the money and buy a big whiteboard behind me so i can sit to one side and draw and talk at the same time so i apologize we'll change this in 30 days but here we go jackson so you're saying that in a sandstone or a shale, you have got this trilobite that is buried uh, by a local catastrophe. And tell me again the number that you just used, because I'm going to write it on the... How long for the formation of a fossil?
1: 10,000 years.
2: Okay, so let's write that down. That's 10,000 years. Um. Forgive me, my friend. I want to put a bunch of exclamation points and question marks there. Um, let me use the simplest example that I use with my grandchildren. Uh, when we travel down to the Mississippi-Alabama line, uh, the Florida-Alabama line called Florabama, and we go out on beaches there uh, in that part of Florida, which we enjoy, I will walk with my grandchildren, and we'll make footprints in the sand. And then I'll pull them uh, from what would be called the littoral zone, where that those waves are going. I'll pull them up to the beach, and I say, "Watch!" And the next couple of waves come in and wipe away the footprints. Then I have my children get down in the surf with me and face, uh, uh, what would you call it, uh, face the beach, and We then look close as the waves come and hit, and the fossil uh, clams and snails, what would technically be called plesipods and gastropods, they're broken all up. It's a rare day that you find a whole um, uh, plesipod clam or gastropod shale. I'm sorry, snail, and so. I don't think your 10,000 year estimate makes common sense.
0: Thank you for that uh, thorough response, David. And people are saying they always appreciate the visuals. So we're going to hand it back to Jackson. Jackson, the question was for you and therefore final thoughts, final words on that uh, question.
1: Well, for an example, we'll go back to shark T. A shark tooth can last for hundreds of years before fossilization even begins on the seafloor, but uh, they find sub-fossil remains of like dodos. I was reading on Mauritius uh, that are maybe hundreds or thousands of years old. So it's a it's a process. It doesn't just happen instantly. Uh, but you know, I'm not again. I'm not a geologist, so arguing with it about this process with geologists is kind of stupid but you know i'm I'm just saying that's what i've read anyway
0: all right thank you uh for the engagement on that question gentlemen so this next one comes in from what's the takeaway i appreciate it uh unfortunately i gotta apologize i lost his question but i do remember what He asked, so it's probably not worded exactly like he originally asked, but it was something like this. So uh, his question is for you, Professor McQueen. He says, how do you explain the Cambrian explosion from the Young Earth creationist perspective, specifically?
2: Okay. Um, Tell me when I've got about 30 seconds left for my two minutes, okay? Perfect. So this... Is the current creationist idea of what the one world continent of Genesis looks like? Uh, the vocabulary that's used in plate tectonics is applicable here. Uh, this sea, as seen from space, as I teach, uh, I say the sea stands for creation, but this one world continent uh, has what's called the, the Tethys Sea, uh, Gondwana land. And these are many of the terms that you may have come across in your reading, uh, certainly if you took Geology 101. Now, when the Great Flood began, uh, the uh, fountains of the Great Deep broke up. There was a tremendous amount of erosion. And so... If I use another color and show what the coastal area might have looked like, I think that we can assume that all in this University of Tennessee orange coastal zone here, uh, most of the people live because people love the coast. But more importantly, I've drawn this offshore in what would be called the littoral zone. Where creatures like trilobites and uh, these jawless conodont eel like things would have lived. And so the takeaway from my argument is that 30 seconds. When these uh, uh, rocks were formed, and then when catastrophic plate tectonics came along and began to move those rocks. During uh, the next five months, uh, we would predict as young earth creationists that we would find uh, an ecological zone uh, of creatures that were bottom dwellers in the earliest, most rock.
0: Thank you very much, Professor McQueen, for that response. And Jackson, over to you for your response. Go ahead.
2: Maybe.
0: all right i know
1: i sound like a broken record talking about shark teeth but uh, the littoral zone is where most species of sharks live or close to it but uh it's where most starfish live most sea urchins so we find conodonts and trilobites but no uh but none of these things i think that doesn't make sense from a creationist
2: perspective and that that's all
0: Okay, thank you there, Jackson. I appreciate the response. Over to you, Professor McQueen.
2: And I will respond to that that uh, we hope, Jackson and I, that you all go home. Uh, well, I guess you, if you're online, you're already home, I guess. Uh, <laughs> it would take some time to uh, look into honest uh, issues. Uh, I think I have an adequate explanation for where trilobites and conodonts might be, but I do not yet have an adequate explanation for Jackson about why there are no shark's teeth. For that matter, I don't know why there wouldn't be an occasional dinosaur bone or human bone associated with the cambrian. So I will end my uh, response to Jackson by saying that Dr. Henry Moore has always taught us that you work for the Institute for Creation Research, not the Institute for Creation Answers. I'll work on this shark problem, Jackson.
0: We'll talk about it in the future. Right. Yeah. Okay, gentlemen, thank you for the responses. Uh, great job so far. This has been a really awesome debate. So next one comes in from Michael Knighton. I appreciate your super chat, your support, and your question. So question is for you, Jackson. Michael asks, how ask him how dinosaur blood and tissue lasted hundreds of millions of years defying all laws of entropy and calcification
1: not sure it was blood exactly but there was some uh, like collagen like someone else mentioned and it wasn't just collagen in its current form it was it was a mineralized collagen they had to dissolve it in the bath of acid and uh the explanation was iron from the blood preserves some of the stuff in a cross-linking, I think it's called, like formaldehyde does, like the, sh- the shark is. I know my, my presentation has been very shark-heavy today. But formaldehyde preserving the shark, same way the iron in the blood would preserve tissue. And I think the word entropy gets thrown around a lot. I think like the second law of thermodynamics isn't exactly what everyone thinks it is. But anyway, that's
0: my answer. Thank you for the answer, Jackson. Over to you, Professor McQueen, for your response.
2: Well, I'll start by saying no. Um, A number of other presentations on Standing for Truth have covered this issue of dinosaur soft tissue. But let's take it down to the Cambrian and see what we would expect there. So if we go to the Cambrian... Mm -hmm. We could go to uh, an oil a reservoir in the canyon, Cambrian, because this exists uh, in the Southern Appalachian Mountains, for example. There are some areas that you can find uh, uh, the trilobites that we've been talking about, and I'll use the orange again to go in crude oil in this anaclinal structure. I've got to put my tree here so you see this uh, cross-section. So if you go to the Cambrian of the Southern Appalachians, you do indeed find trilobites, but you also find these rocks deformed by the action of uh, catastrophic plate tectonics and uh, folded in the uh, Southern Appalachian Mountains. In those folds, there are accumulations of crude oil. Now, I have challenged, and will continue to challenge, uh, Erica and others that have commented about oil basins, to send me the ten, the hundred thousand dollars that I need to be able to drill a well into a structure like this in the Cambrian, take out the crude oil, send that crude oil. For forensic analysis, I would touch it, the driller would touch it. So we would do a swab of our own cheek, send that in. Wouldn't it be very, would it not be very interesting if we could find human DNA in what's supposed to be 600 million year old rocks? Interesting thought, isn't it, Jackson?
1: It would be an interesting experiment, but it would be an expensive one.
0: It would, that's true. Yeah. All right. Next question here comes in from George Bond, our award winning co host. So, what a lot, George. <laughs> so, a question for you, Jackson. He's coming at you. He's coming at you. So, he says finding collagen in 65 million year old fossils. With a half-life shorter than DNA is one thing, but when the collagen is found with C14 is another. How do you explain this?
1: Well, we kind of touched on this during the debate. Uh, Collagen, cross-linking preservation. Uh, The carbon-14, some kind of contamination most likely. But uh, that's pretty much what I have to say about it.
0: Thank you, Jackson. Over to you, Professor McQueen. Okay. An ICR scientist
2: very carefully and at great personal expense worked on his PhD in England. That's what this is, E is supposed to be here. I didn't write it very clearly. And he worked on this issue of uh, collagen and where you would find it in the fossil record. And as he has published his work now, and has uh, gotten his Ph.D., and you know is working for ICR, and has presented objective scientific evidence that this collagen is not just as Jackson tries to trivialize. It's not just where you have some. A collagen that is, uh, uh, what would the word be? Um, Filled with uh, iron-rich elements and iron-rich minerals, and that somehow preserves them for a a very long time. Uh, The work of ICR and the other scientists that have been interested since Dr. Schweitzer made her discovery, of soft tissue. Uh, We're beginning to see this coming up everywhere. Uh, All kinds of uh, fossil material has been uh, identified as having the soft tissue, including by the evolutionary community itself. They've begun to recognize that she's discovered something unique. That would be
0: my counter argument to Jackson. Thank you very much there, David, for the response. Uh, Jackson, I believe the question was for you originally, so you can have the last word.
1: Yeah, I don't deny they're finding small amounts of soft tissue in many fossils, but uh, if this happened 4,400 years ago that all the fossils were buried, uh, why are we not finding whole unfossilized things or just sub-fossils? That would be my argument. We should find bones and like an, anaerobic environment that aren't uh, even fossilized or not, or at least partially fossilized.
0: All right, next question comes in from Darth, and uh, this is a $10 super chat, so I appreciate it. And some of these words I can already tell are gonna be difficult for me to pronounce, so I'll do my best. Question for McQueen. What about fossils like Kimberella? is interpreted to represent a lophotrochozoan stem group. Eandromeda is argued to be a stem group. Ctenophore, early Precambrian. And wait, wait, let me just see the uh, rest of the question here. Shrimp there. Precambrian. Oh, whoops. Uh, ch- ch- what was the last part of it, uh, Jackson?
2: A shrimp. shrimp. Oh,
0: Precambrian shrimp. An- animal.
2: Yeah, go ahead and put that up so I can write this down. So this must be a cousin to Simber to Cinderella. My my grandchildren know about Cinderella. Let me write down Kimberella, K-I-M-B-E-R-E-L-L-A, is interpreted to represent a L, and it ends with the letter N stem group. Now this is evolutionary vocabulary with the idea that these uh, uh, this creature related to Cinderella uh, stayed out too late, missed the pumpkin, I guess, and (laughs) began to evolve into other things from this STEM group. Uh, My counter argument to that uh, brother Darth is that uh, from a creationist standpoint, Kimberella appears abruptly and fully formed. The second one, uh, which I will write down here, E.O. Andromeda is a stem group for this shrimp. Well, it is true that you find the shrimp like ad- ad- creatures and the Kimberella in the Ediacaran fo- fossils. But my counter to that is that when you find them, I don't see any of the transitions. Uh, so early, simple, Precambrian. Okay. These are what would be called the Ediacara f- fossils. And so uh, my argument, my counterargument to Jackson on this and to you is that, these creatures, and I'll use the shrimp as an example, um, look so fresh, look so well preserved that down here in Louisiana, the Cajuns would make shrimp etouffee out of them. You know, they're 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 so fresh looking. I tried to make you guys laugh about the shrimp etouffee, but <laughs> at any rate. The, the 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 serious part of this is that they're still appearing abruptly and fully formed.
0: If, if, if I could ask a quick follow-up question, too, even for clarification with the audience um, or elaboration. From the young earth creationist position, Professor McQueen, these early simple pre-Cambrian animals, how do those fit in with the young earth creationist model of oh, uh, ecological well, zonation?
2: This is my critique of Jackson's use of the word simple for the last two hours. They are not simple. You've got a, a, a shrimp that... Um, is a much larger size than the shrimp found offshore Louisiana, but they're still shrimp. Uh, They're uh, very complex creatures uh, with no obvious uh, precursor. Now, I'm going to look up Kimberella and these other words uh, and check them against uh, my creation science buddies that have spent a lot of time in the last 10 years looking at the whole issue of transitional organisms from the upper Precambrian into the Cambrian. And I will defer that as a study
0: issue. And if I could, uh, Professor McQueen, one last clarification point, I guess. Uh, So the existence, so you're saying the existence of these Precambrian organisms do not help explain the explosion of novel body plans and organisms up in the Cambrian.
2: Right. And remember that my comment goes way back to the Reverend Dr. Adam Sedgwick. Had he been in Western Canada, had he seen the Burgess Shale, he would have classified the whole group of where he saw those first fossils as being Cambrian. So, there is a topic for another night about the artificiality of the uh, rock record. I'll add one clarification to that. If the three of us were to travel to England, we could go visit Wales, but we could also go over to the Devonshire area, and we could find where a creation scientist um, uh, coined the term Devonian. So in the Devonshire area, you find fish fossils. That's the Devonshire area. Uh, if we were to go to Europe, you know, take the train over to France and then go on to Germany, we would find the old Trias or Triassic. And in Europe, it's tri, it's three basic rock tops in which you find dinosaur fossils. And so these terms are essentially terms of geography. Does that help Donnie?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to thank Darth for a good question that uh, w- would result and has resulted in, in some good uh, feedback and just ongoing discussion for sure. So uh, I appreciate that response there, Professor McQueen. Um, I appreciate this debate. I mean, this has been a great debate. So let's hand it over to you, Jackson, uh, for your response. Uh, take as much time as you need, since we just spent a little bit more than two minutes engaging that, that question from Professor McQueen's side. So go ahead, Jackson.
1: All right. Well, Kimberella is interpreted as an early mollusk, uh, potentially, and just like Spragina is interpreted as a possible early arthropod. Uh, now, I say the word simple, I, I'm using that as a relative term. These are still complex organisms, but relative to the later organisms, they're simple. I don't mean they're simple in, the, in themselves. So that's uh, pretty much all I wanted to say on that.
0: And so let,
2: me, let me have a clarification from my opponent here. So, Kimberella is a kind of mollusk, did you say? Potentially,
0: yes. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Would, I guess for clarification from your end, Jackson Rowe, would a, let's say a, a bike, would that be simple relative to, let's say a car?
1: Well, you're using that nested hierarchy argument you used last, or the other night.
0: Uh, well, I'm just trying to understand, even for the audience sake, when you say yeah. simple relative to let's say something like a trilobite in the Cambrian Well, sure is, that's is a, that, that kind theory. of a, a, yeah go that's ahead
1: a workable analogy
0: so okay okay so and and I guess back to you then Professor McQueen so would that then be based on a presupposition that there has been transitions?
2: Yeah let me uh let me quote uh, from uh, one of the authors of the paleontology book that I used uh, at Tennessee in the 70s. That's Stephen Stan- Stanley. In 79, he wrote a book called Macro Evolution Patterns and Processes. And Dr. Stanley wrote this. It was formally claimed, I'm sorry, this is a commentary on his comment. It was formally claimed that the best evidence for evolution was the fossil record. But the fact is that billions of known fossils have not yet yielded a single unequivocal transitional series with transitional structures in the process of evolving. That's Dr. Henry Morris. Now, here's his quote from Stanley. Stanley says, the known fossil record fails to document a single example of phyletic evolution accomplishing a major morphological transition. So, um, Darwin predicted in 1859 that there would be a whole chain of life and there would be major morphologic transitions that geologists would find in the 100 years after the publication of 1859. This ubiquitous absence of intermediate forms is true not only of major morphologic transitions, Dr. Morse writes, but even for most species. So um, I don't think that Kimberella and the other things that Jackson is arguing is an example of phylum-level
0: evolution
1: can i well, this real quick
0: of, of course jackson right. go ahead
1: I, i've made a catalog of uh almost 2500 uh transitional species or genera mostly mostly genera. so it probably translates like three or four thousand species but uh so I, I would say there definitely are some transitional fossils
0: And before we give the final word to to David there, I wanted to ask you one last clarifying question, Jackson, and this has been such a great debate. The feedback from the chat has been awesome, David and Jackson. People are loving this. It's just such an interesting topic and just so important. So one clarifying question too, especially for the audience sake that we get the most out of this debate, these organisms that that you call simple in the the pre-Cambrian, are you saying that these would be the precursors or uh, early forms of those more complex organisms as you'd put it found yeah. in the cambrian
1: yeah that's what i'm saying that some of these can be interpreted as uh, ancestors to what comes later and even within the cambrian there are some transitionals like the one discovered or unveiled a couple days ago whose name i can't remember for some reason and then kylencia sanghi And uh, one other thing, he commented that uh, the fossils are well preserved. And I agree. That picture of the Kylixia, I don't know if you remember the one I'm talking about, but uh, I want to get that made into a poster, just uh, kind of off topic. But anyway.
2: Yeah. Well, let me respond to that. Definitely. Uh, If you go to ICR's website, icr.org, and you look up a book by John Morris and Frank Sherwin. This book has a elaborate uh, appendix that uh, uh, Professor Sherwin, now Dr. Sherwin as it turns out, uh, put together on transitional forms. Jackson, I'd, I'd like to encourage you uh, to... Uh, Sell some of your shark fossils so I don't have to keep seeing them and take that money and buy this book by Morris and Sherwin. Just a little humor there. But seriously, (laughs) this book deals with uh, item by item, genus by genus, transitional organisms. Morris and Sherwin.
1: Yeah, my presentation's been a little bit shark-headed. I apologize.
2: (laughs) It's okay. (laughs) No worries. No worries. That's good. Our oldest son is an attorney, so I'm used to (laughs) sharks.
0: You guys are keeping this uh, intellectual and also humorous. So I appreciate it. This has definitely been a a debate to remember. I I know this one's going to get shared around. So next question comes in from Power Word. And his question is, Um, I don't see it directed to anybody specifically. So let's read it and then we'll see who who it might be uh, more so directed towards. So he says, wouldn't the great unconformity being tied to the flood explain the missing fossils before the Cambrian, since there is a very special set of circumstances needed to fossilize? I feel like this one might be for you, David. um, Yeah. More so. And uh, I always
2: bring with me my sheets of paper from the previous discussion, and so I'm glad I've got this here. We'll leave rhenium osmium for another day, but here is the great unconformity in the Grand Canyon that's being talked about, and um, this uh, image here, I'm going to uh, take my marker and draw, not draw, highlight the top and the bottom of the uh, tapete sandstone and the Bright Angel shale, but we'll focus on the Tapeats because that is the traditional um, um, Cambrian unit. And so if you notice my uh, orange highlight there, that's a Tapeach sandstone and it lies unconform, unconformally above the uh, rocks of the gorge of the Grand Canyon. And these rocks have words, have names like uh, the Bass, Limestone, Shinomu, uh, Docks Formation. There's some lava flows and so forth there, but there's the Tapete sandstone and um, And then over here on this side is the Zoroaster granite. That's important. But now, let's, uh, having used that, let me try to be more specific in this uh, question. Uh, The individual asking the question is quite right. Um, Obviously, either at the beginning of the flood or... um, of tree here. At the beginning of the flood, uh, the area that I'm going to circle in orange was uh, uplifted. I'm sorry, bent would be the word I'd use. And why is that true? One of the foundational principles that both evolutionary geologists and creationist creation geologists, flood geologists agree, is that every sediment that you see that's a limestone or a sandstone was originally deposited flat and so let me turn this so it it was originally deposited flat and then in the tectonic activity of the early part of the flood it was bent now it is important to know that in these fossils circled in orange there are no fossils the fossils that have been found by others, not me, and these goes all the way back into the 1800s when geologists on horseback rode around the Grand Canyon, they did find trilobites in the Cambrian to Pete Sandstone, which is highlighted in orange here. Those creatures, those trilobites in the Grand Canyon Appear abruptly and fully formed, and so the, the the presence of an angular unconformity is consistent with catastrophic flood geology.
0: I appreciate that uh, thorough answer, uh, Brother McQueen, as well as the visuals. So let's hand it over to Jackson. Jackson, uh, your response.
1: Well, I'm not the geologist among the two of us. So that's really not a question for me. I'll stay in my lane on on that. So uh, I'll just, uh, we can just go to the next one.
0: All right. And I want to put this up here. This is from born 100 years late. Um, He gives a $5 super chat. He says, great show. I appreciate it. Spread the word, hit the thumbs up. I appreciate it. If you have not hit the thumbs up yet, uh please do and also if you're not yet subscribed please hit that subscribe button. i want to see if i missed any super chats uh brother mitchell gave a super chat as well i appreciate the support and everybody everybody else who gave uh super stickers super chat so we only have time really for one more question because i just looked at the time and wow this has been such a great debate i, I mean have. two hours and 15 minutes so I, I didn't even realize that so we'll do one last question and, guys, thank you so much for being so uh, engaging in, in the live chat and, and um, putting in so many great questions and on topic questions, too. Um, so, we'll do I, one last. Yeah, I'm sorry. I am okay. For Jackson and his honest approach to this, go ahead. Amen. Amen. Um, okay, so let's end it with this one. And I apologize if we didn't get to your question, but we got to end it somewhere. So I appreciate the endurance from uh, the debaters tonight. Sea Science Film Labs, I appreciate the question there, uh, brother. He says, "If you have time, uh, Jackson, please explain why environmental pressures haven't changed the many, fos- uh, many fossils of still living forms." So he uh, sounds like he's referring to the so-called like living cel- fossils, or like celacan- or something. Coelacanth, the yeah. pine so on and so forth. So yeah. go ahead.
1: My interpretation of that would be uh, different animals undergo different selective pressures. Uh, you know, if, if an animal finds itself in an environment that it fits, it's not gonna have much pressure to change much. But uh, having said that, animals like coelacanths or even uh, this is an example of kind of a living fossil, the uh, horseshoe crab have changed a lot this one's from the order this is from the order visions is where they began they don't look exactly like this in the order and they change quite a lot as geologic time goes by and there's only this this form left so uh that would pretty much be my answer and unfortunately that was my pet that i was holding up and now it's not so now it's a
0: visual aid <laughs> no, no worries
2: Yeah, and I want to critique uh, what Jackson says using this seashell collection that Ms. McQueen and I have been given over the years. Um, The creatures, like I've got my finger on here, this would be a snail, a gastropod, and then if I move my hand over to this area, the white would be a plesipod or a clam my argument to you jackson and my response to this uh, issue if if clams are found uh at least 500 million years ago in ordovician rocks and we've had 500 million years of evolution how come some of these clams um the uh the kind of clam that is part of the shell oil a sign uh, and other clams how come they look essentially the same when i take my children to the mississippi gulf coast as what they look in the fossil record it seems like there's a constancy in these creatures what do you make of that that some of them look almost exactly the same in the caribbean right now as their fossil ancestors as you would put it
0: go ahead jackson
1: all right i would say uh, again different selection pressures on different things but uh about the uh and again i forget the first part what was the first part of what you said
0: uh, put the question I, back I, up donnie please sure let me um yeah track it down in the chat here we got right. some good uh good feedback in the chat there we go there's a question
1: yeah i mean again it goes back to selection pressures and uh, like small shelly fauna this is what i was gonna say we call it small shelly fauna in the early cambrian which is simple little organisms with shells simple mollusks and then the ordovician they diversify into kind of the clams we roughly know today but well, they have changed a little bit over time, but, uh, you're right. Not much, but, uh, that's the exception, not the norm. Most animals aren't like their, uh, ancestors.
2: Well, uh, uh, you have challenged me as your opponent to find an example of something of constancy. Uh, it seems to me that these, uh, Uh, plesiopods, these clams in the Ordovician have remained essentially the same even though there have been environmental pressures over 500 million years. Uh, It looks like to me that what started out as a clam is still a clam. Uh, And I think that's actually a profound way Uh, you two, to end my part of the debate. Um, I, uh, again, I'm so very thankful to Jackson. And um, uh, using my email, please resend me your mailing address. Yeah, I will. And uh, I'll be sure in the next few days to get this off to you. Thank you.
0: All right. Well, that concludes the audience Q&A, and that concludes the debate. Two and a half hours has flown by. Fantastic job to Jackson and David. Uh, Gentlemen, thank you so much for giving us your time for tonight's debate. If you guys were not so generous with your time, we wouldn't have these uh, epic debates here on Standing for Truth. Good.
2: I'm going to move my cursor down to leave the studio,
0: and I will see you, Jackson, next time, my friend. All right. I'll see you around. God bless, David. Thank you for the epic debate. So, looks like we had a great chat tonight. The chat was filled with a lot of great feedback, comments, and questions. The audience Q&A was a ton of fun. And it looks like logical, plausible, probable, or logical, plausible, possible, according to uh, Rahmat. It's hard remember. <laughs> uh Is having an after show. Uh, tonight is going to be a little later because... This debate was a little earlier than usual. So, uh, his after show will be at 11. Uh, John has had some epic after shows lately, uh, especially since we've been doing so many uh, evolution creation related debates. As uh, we they start know, out good and
1: then they turn into dumpster fires. But
0: <laughs> they, yeah, they start off a little more formal, equally timed, and cordial. And then they usually uh, devolve more evidence of genetic entropy into uh, a dumpster fire. So uh, the evolution challenge video we put out a little while ago has, has gotten a lot of good feedback and we've been getting a lot of awesome requests. So that's why we've been getting so many good creation evolution related debates. Jackson, I always appreciate you being so willing to engage these important topics.
1: Yeah. I know that uh, that Matt Powell was, wanting to do a genetics type debate uh maybe i'm not sure if he still does or not but if you if you're watching this matt uh let's do it you know Me yeah we got
0: a, yeah we got a couple more debates for you uh coming up there jackson you're you're pretty seasoned at this point in in that you've had quite a few debates with um uh lots of uh young earth creationists and um some well-known young earth creationists too. Yeah. So you've done a great job. You and I just had a debate on Monday. Please check that out guys. Uh, Jackson, we got a couple more debates for you. And uh, Professor McQueen's got some more debates coming up as well. Again, this is going to be a must watch debate. Make sure you're here for this. This is going to be a technical debate between two scientists, well-studied, well-educated and highly knowledgeable scientists, Professor McQueen and Jason Torn, the Genesis flood debate. Uh, this will be the first week of April. I believe it is. And tomorrow night, uh, this one may not be as easy to moderate as tonight, but we'll see. (laughs) I'll make sure I'm on my A game. The big rematch, David Neff, Dr. Dino creation versus evolution. Specifically, they're going to be debating, um, you know, what is the best evidence for evolution? Uh, David Neff um, has a few lines of evidence that he believes is, um, you know, some of the best Evidence for evolution. We're going to specifically be debating that uh, tomorrow. So that's going to be a great show. Guys, make sure you are here for that. That'll be a wild one. That will be a party (laughs) for sure. So um, I think that's it for announcements. I'm just looking here and. Oh, uh, let me say
1: something. Let me get on a soapbox real quick.
0: Go ahead. If you're
1: an American citizen, contact your senators. Tell them to take the Lacey Act amendments out of the uh, American Competes Act. So do that.
0: I appreciate it Jackson. I I appreciate it. So again, thank you, uh, Jackson. Thank you everybody in the chat. Thank you for the super stickers, the super chats, the great questions. And I guess we'll see you uh, later tonight over on John Maddox's channel, logical, plausible, probable. Please make sure you check his channel out. And if you're not yet subscribed to his channel, uh, his channel is the one that puts on the after shows to all of these epic debates we have scheduled. So make sure you are subscribed to his channel so you don't miss the debate after shows. Everybody, thank you so much for tuning in. And again, this was our 150th debate. So if you're not yet subscribed, hit the subscribe button and also go to our playlist section uh, on the channel and look up uh, debates hosted by Standing for Truth. And you have 150 debates so far to uh, enjoy on all sorts of topics, all sorts of topics. So that being said, thanks again for tuning in. God bless. Standing for truth. Peace.